I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thanks, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Oh, Today, I am working on my communication skills with an expert communicator. Matt Abrahams is a podcast host, an educator, an author, and he is going to get us to focus in more accurately and meaningfully in our communication. Matt, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. All right. Are you ready to have a spontaneous conversation? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yeah. So let's start with that icebreaker story. Tell me about why icebreakers are important. Well, so icebreakers serve two purposes, really. They serve the purpose to bring people together to connect. There's always an awkwardness at the beginning of things. I call it commencing. How you commence something can feel really awkward. So if you have a tool and a shared activity that brings people together, then it helps break the ice, literally. Now, for me personally, my favorite way to do that is through tongue twisters. And tongue twisters are fun because they're just fun to say. They also cause you to be very focused on the present moment. And if you do it as a group, it allows everybody to hear your voice. I do these tongue twisters as a way of just warming up. In fact, before you and I started talking today, I said the tongue twister is a way to warm up my voice. You know, if anybody's ever done any sports or or you exercise, you know you should warm up before you start. The same thing is true with our communication and talking. For some reason, we think we should be able to go from silence to brilliance, and that's not always the case. So my favorite tongue twister, you're welcome to say it with me or just listen to it. It's three phrases, takes five seconds to say, and if you say it wrong, you say a naughty word. So it is, I slit a sheet. Do you want to play along? Okay. (laughs) I slit a sheet. I slit a sheet. A sheet I slit. A sheet I split. And on that slitted sheet, I sit. And on that slitted sheet, I sit. So good. You did not say that naughty word and you can imagine what it would have been. So well done. And you see, now we're warmed up. We're connected. We're ready to go. It's a great way to get things started. I am that person who gets super nervous in front of crowds. I am part of that 85%. Yes, yes. What happens to you when you get nervous in front of people? Do you shake? Do you perspire? What are the things that go on for you? 
Yeah, I haven't paid attention to the shakiness, but I feel like you can hear it in my voice. One thing that I have done to get over that fear, and I also think this is part of why my podcast works well, is that I'll bring my daughter with me to speaking engagements if I'm speaking in front of like 40 or 50 people. And just having her smile at me and the audience. That's great helps so much because I'm like, oh, she knows me. And having my dad as my co-host, I feel like allows for me to be myself as well. That's lovely. And there's a lot of research to say that if there is something that we can connect to that's meaningful to us, can really help us to feel more connected and more confident. So sometimes what speakers will do is they'll call somebody or text somebody that's meaningful to them just to have that connection. Other times they'll just look at a picture or remember a memory and that can help as well. All of those are ways to remind yourself that you are a person of value and that there are people who care and support you. And going into one of these challenging situations can be very, very difficult. So I love that you do that. And there are lots of different ways to ease your anxiety. That's one of them for sure. What I will do is when I have a speaking engagement, I'll go out and I'll talk to people in the audience because when I do that, I realize, hey, these are just normal people. And in fact, they're here to get something of value I have to offer. And that reminds me that it's not about me, it's about them. And that really helps me to relax. Yeah, somebody else told me that talking to people in the audience also kind of humanizes the experience. I think that that's a great idea. It's also funny that you mentioned the picture thing, because one day a week I... I'm an on-air announcer at an internet radio station. And one trick that they told me was put a picture of someone next to the computer so that when you do a break, it's like you're talking to that person. So I have a picture of me and Jerry Springer next to my computer because that was like a highlight of my career when I felt like I was on top of the world. That's so cool. And you know, I use very similar advice for virtual communication when you're communicating over Zoom or Teams or Meet. We need to look at the camera because when we look at the camera, it looks like we're looking at the audience. So I actually tape a picture of my family, who on most days I like, right behind it. And so when I'm talking to you, I'm actually seeing them and that just makes it so much easier for me. That's cute. I did hear you say that teens push your buttons. Can you tell me a little bit about how you can communicate better with teens? You're referring to Microsoft Teams? No, teens like teenagers. Teens. I thought you said teams. Yeah. So I have two. I have two. And I taught high school for a while and I taught at community college. So I actually love teenagers. They're fantastic. I love their energy, their curiosity, their willingness to share their opinions, uh, even if they're not appropriate. But, you know, it can be a struggle just as working with colleagues who aren't really there or focused or, you know, into what they're doing. So my wife is much better at this than I am. And and her mantra is minimal words, listen first. And those are two things that I really need to take on myself. And I think these help in all communication. So start by listening, not by telling. And the fewer the words, the better. You know, concision is important. And when you're talking to teenagers, we have found you know, I'm a professor. I teach. I talk a lot. And sometimes saying less is more, especially to my teenagers. Ah, that's funny. I think we're in the generation of that, though. I mean, look at all these social media posts. I try to keep them short, too. Nobody wants to read paragraphs upon paragraphs of information. I definitely, I think on websites, I think on presentations, less is more. Everything. Yeah, yeah. My mother has this saying, I know she didn't create it, and I think it's so powerful. It's, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. 
And we are all clock builders. We say more than we need to say. Just focus in on the time, what is important for that person in this moment. And if they want to know more, they can ask you questions. And I think that's, we just have to remind ourselves of that. It's very easy to think that we have to say more. And when we get nervous, we tend to say more and more thinking like, well, people will be distracted by my words or they'll see that I'm super smart. But in fact, I think you're actually annoying those people. So... So I think we don't be annoying. (laughs) Don't be annoying. Don't be annoying. That's number one rule of communication. Don't be annoying. Yeah, that would be nice. I would love to know, like, where did your love of communication begin? I know you've been doing it for like decades. Yeah, I hope you didn't just call me old. No, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, My fascination with communication started when I was a young boy. There are two stories, one with my mother, one with my father that really got me excited, in particular about influence and persuasion, which really was my door into all of this. So my brother and I were younger. We were probably like seven or eight or something like that. My mother decided we were going to have a garage sale, a yard sale. We had so many toys and things we were playing with and all that. She said, we're getting rid of this. So we're going to have a garage sale. I grew up in a community where there were lots of garage sales all the time. So my mother instructed my brother and me to make signs that said garage sale, but to spell them wrong. And if you insert a B in the word garage, you get garbage. So we had a garbage sale. And everybody else in our neighborhood had garage sales. And we sold more stuff than anybody else. To this day, my mother claims that it's because this misspelling drew people's attention and they came to us. I think people thought we were stupid and they'd get better deals, but it doesn't matter. What it taught me in the moment was that the words you use through communication, you can influence behavior. More people came to us than other people. And at another time, my father was reading the newspaper. This is back in the day where people actually read newspapers. They held the paper in their hands. And my father was laughing behind the paper. I said, what's so funny, dad? And he called me over and he was reading the comics, comic strips. And there was a comic of a father who had his arm around his son looking at the store that the father clearly owned. And across the store, it said, going out of business. And the caption to the comic was, someday, son, this will all be yours. And I was confused. I was befuddled. The store's going out of business. How can he pass it on to his son? And my father said, no, 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 no. This was just a tool, a gimmick that they were using to get people to come in the store to get deals. And again, I thought, Wow. Through communication, you can influence and persuade people. So from a young boy, I was very interested in these notions of communication and how we can use our words to influence people for the good and for bad as well. Wow. That is actually so interesting. (laughs) I want to tell you a little story that happened last night. I mean, this is crazy. I don't even know if I should talk about it, but I applied to a job on LinkedIn two days ago. This guy who posted was looking for a podcast producer, which is something that I do on the side. And I haven't changed my LinkedIn profile yet. It still says I'm Chicago based and he is based out of Chicago. So he probably thought I was local, which is fine. You know, I can produce them remotely, but that's not what he's looking for. So prior to the interview, I good researcher does. And I scoured the Internet like, who is this guy? I'm going to be producing potentially his content, right? This guy is the number one infomercial king ever. He has sold $25 billion worth of products and books, et cetera. But the New York Times bestselling author, he also just got out of prison two years ago. Yes, he is a master communicator, which can be used for good or can be used for scams. So I went on the interview because I was fascinated by this guy, right? Like, 
I wanted to see his artful communication put to work. I wanted to see the controversy behind this guy. So he tells me that I'm one of 200 people that he selected for the interview. He has his virtual assistant set up the Zoom call, and I'm feeling like an A player. So I get on this Zoom call, and there's 50 other people on the call. So I'm not really an A player. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's right? yeah. He puts up this ad. He says, starting salary, 75K, bonuses up to 200,000. And, you know, we're going to hire people from Hollywood to put my studio together. And this sounds exciting, right? From the words he's using, who wouldn't want this? But what he doesn't say in the post is six days a week, nine to five. You can't be a minute late. I'm judging you based upon what you look like, how you speak, who you are, then that you buy into my mission. That was for the private Zoom call. So as I'm on the Zoom call and I'm just taking notes ferociously, I'm like, this is crazy. I'm just enamored by his communication. It's genius. How many people can get 50 people on a webinar in under 24 hours? He did that. But by the end of the hour call, it was dropped down to 31 people. Huh. And then on the interview, he held up a sign with an address and specific instructions on how to get to the next steps. So he has a a formula for how he hires people. And then he says things like, you know, Joe Rogan told me to start a podcast and I've been interviewed by Howard Stern and he's name dropping all these people and all these money that he's made. And you can have this too. So fascinating. Communication is fascinating what you can get people to do. Absolutely. It is a double-edged sword. I mean, it can be used for great things. And I am all about helping people find their voice, share their what's important to them, bring their selves and their voices into the public sphere and dialogue. But you can certainly use these very same skills to manipulate, to harm. And so part of becoming aware of what you can do is also learning how to protect yourself from those using it for less than positive ends. Now, you did, at the beginning of your career, study that was studying people in prison. Is that right? Uh, So I studied with somebody who did. So I studied with a gentleman named Phil Zimbardo. He's very famous and to some infamous. And he did a very famous study called the Stanford Prison Experiment. And it was a study that was very enlightening about so many things, but it was called into question for some of the ethics about how it was run, et cetera. And I'll let people form their own opinions on this. What I will tell you about him personally is that he actually was very interested and still is interested in communication. He started one of the very first shyness clinics in the country. So he is somebody who really is interested in, it was and is interested in helping people to communicate, to feel comfortable in situations. And that's what I gravitated towards uh, studying with him is, is how communication works. He did a number of other very important studies in the field of psychology, but he is known primarily for the what's called the Stanford Prison Experiment. And people have strong opinions on both sides of if it was a good experiment to have run and not such a good experiment. But as a mentor, as a teacher, as somebody who is interested in communication, I benefited greatly from working with him. What did you learn from that experiment? What did you take away from it? Well, from the the Stanford prison experiment. So besides the ethical issues that I think we all need to be concerned with, the the part of what I think the study showed is that the power of the situation. I'm not qualified to talk much about the study except to say that people were randomly assigned to be guards or prisoners. And based on the power and status that came with that, people very quickly 
behaved in role-appropriate ways to the disadvantage and actual harm of some of the people in the, the prisoner roles, which is clearly not appropriate. But what it showed was how much a situation and roles and titles can impact not only the person in the role, but also impact the people who are responding to that role. So to me, it was a very powerful lesson in the power of the situation. And I think many people take that lesson from this study as well. Yeah, I think I did study that in yeah. college. Fascinating. How cool that you yeah. got to work with him. Yeah. Also, in your book, you talk a lot about your influence of improv. Can you talk a little bit about that? I love improv. I actually took improv classes just for fun with my husband because I think it's such a valuable tool. I have come to learn and love improv for many, many reasons. I have had great friends and mentors in, in improv, Patricia Ryan Madsen, Adam Tobin, Dan Klein. These are all folks who are just masters at their craft and they've helped me see the value of it. So many people when they hear of improv think it's all about being funny. Improvisation is not about being funny. It could be a result of it, but improvisation, as you well know, and your husband learned too, it's about being in the moment. It's responding and doing what's needed. It is about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And all of these skills are incredibly valuable skills for communication, especially what I call spontaneous communication. And that's what my latest efforts are all about. My book and other things I do are all about how to speak better in the moment. And improv helps us do that. So have you enjoyed doing improv? Is it something that's been fun for you? Oh, my God. I feel like the best part of improv for me was learning how to go all in. Like if yeah. you have an idea, it doesn't even matter if the idea is true, but if you believe it to be true and you go all in with that idea, people will just build onto it and believe that, it's true too. So improv, people think improv, and this is one of the things I learned that I didn't know. People think improv is all about just being completely random and spontaneous. Improvisers follow very specific rules that allow them to be free. So you're familiar with yes and make your partner look good. Sometimes the most important thing to do is nothing. Just let something happen in front of you. All of these rules allow you the freedom to be creative and be spontaneous. And that's the magic of it. And isn't it wonderful when you say something and somebody just embraces it regardless? I mean, unconditionally embraces it. It is so fantastic. It's such a great feeling. Uh, I feel like we need more of that in the workplace because we're so stifled by having to meet deadlines and posture and impress people. But what if we could just simply present ideas that we had and they would be accepted? I think that there would be a lot more innovation if we could operate like that. Absolutely. So in terms of creativity, taking a more of a, a improvisational mindset to things, absolutely. In fact, design thinking does a lot of that. There's a lot of improv. There's a lot of overlap there. Of course, you can't be totally wild and crazy at work and, you know, any ideas. You do have to apply some judgment and evaluation. But after the generative phase, I think what you're talking about is so important in the generative phase of ideas, of brainstorming, yes, all in on yes and, and let's support each other. And then you have to add a layer on it. You know, I have a consulting practice and I've done some consulting for some creative organizations, record companies, movie mm -hmm. labels, movies, orchestras, where creativity is the product. And 
what makes and helps those organizations do well is adopting some of these mindsets early in the generative phase and then applying business principles later to decide, does this really make sense in the short term and long term? So it's really, to my mind, a blending of the two. And there's actually an order effect where you want to do the creativity stuff first, involve the improv mindset, and then apply some of the more disciplined business sort of perspective on things. Tell me about the disciplined business side of things. Well, so every business hopefully has a mission, vision, and value, and you need to apply those to decide if it's relevant and important for your goals of your business in the short and long term. So you could have an amazingly creative idea that would sink your company because it would take too long or cost too much money. So you do have to apply those principles as well. But I think it's a balance and it's an order effect. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about too, like how you're answering my questions and the recipe for answering questions? Ah, so I hope I'm answering your questions well. That's number one. So I'm a big fan of structure. I think structure is really, really important in communication. Our brains do not do well with just long lists or rambling information. It can be very challenging for us to remember as well as to connect the dots. So structure is just a logical ordering of information. And if you can order information logically, it can be really, really helpful for your audience. So I support many, many structures. There's one I teach for answering questions. It has three parts. Part one is answer the question clearly and concisely. Part two is give an example that reinforces or supports the answer. And then finally, explain the relevance, connect the dots. Why is your answer important to the person you're talking to? Many of us assume if I give a good answer, you'll be able to connect the dots, but that's not always the case. I had a psychology professor, a different one than the one we talked about, who had this great saying. He said, the funny thing about common sense is it's not so common. We assume that people see the world the way we do and they just don't. So in an answer, you have to connect it. So let me give you an example. Imagine you are interviewing me for a job. You're the hiring manager and I'm interviewing for a job to be a communication teacher. Okay. What would be a reasonable question you would ask that doesn't just have a number or yes, no as an answer? Go ahead. I'm putting it on the spot a little bit. What's a question you would ask to see if I'm a good candidate? And then I'm going to answer that question using the structure so you can hear how the structure works. Tell me about your top five attributes that you bring to the organization. Awesome. Thank you. So I believe I have many attributes that can make me successful in this role as a communication teacher and trainer. I am somebody who has deep experience. I've been doing this a long time. I have the opportunity to role model and demonstrate the skills that we're talking about. I got the ability to really understand the needs of the people I'm teaching so I can hone the material. I have plenty of examples and try to make my content engaging. And finally, I am somebody who is very open to follow up and to continue education long after my work is done. Though that's my answer. Then I would say, recently I taught a course for entrepreneurs and in it, I had to develop new content and tailor it to the specific needs of these entrepreneurs. They were all from outside the United States. So I had to adjust and adapt my content. What this means is if you hire me, I will apply these five principles and be very specific in the material I create for you. So I answered the question. You asked for five things. I gave you five things. I then gave you an example of how I use those five things in that course I taught. And then I say what this means for you in particular in terms of how I can tailor the content. That to me is a complete answer. Answer, example, relevance. 
How is that different from the concept in your book, what, so what, now what? Thank you. So my favorite structure in the whole world is what you just mentioned. What, so what, now what? It is a three-step structure. The structure I gave, the ADD answer, detailed value, described relevance, that structure is very specific to answering questions. It doesn't necessarily apply to other circumstances. What, so what, now what is like a Swiss army knife. You can use it in so many circumstances. You could choose to use it to answer questions. You can use it to give feedback, to write emails, to give updates. The structure works by first describing what it is you are talking about. Then you explain why it's important and relevant to the person you're talking to. And then finally, you explain how somebody can use it or what the next steps are. So if I were to give you feedback, I might say something like that meeting you came out of went really well, except you spoke really quickly in the part where you were talking about the implementation. That's the what. When you speak quickly, people might think you're not as prepared or you're nervous. That's the so what. The next time you present that material, slow down a little bit and maybe give a few more examples. That's the now what. So do you see how by following those three questions, just answering them, I actually get a good response. So what, so what, now what is an all-purpose structure? ADD is a specific use structure. Regardless, you should structure the information you say, whatever structure you have that works for you. That methodology that you've come up with, isn't that something that you've used towards having to let people go from an organization? Yes. So the story in my book that talks about, it was just a tragedy. I feel so bad about how this played out. I worked in high tech for a decade. I ran learning and development. I had large teams that were global. This was at a time where the economy really tanked and the company hit a brick wall and we needed to lay people off. I was told that my team was safe. We were a learning and development team. We had lots of things in the planning. Literally three days later, I was told I had to let go of a part of my team in, in the southeastern part of the United States. And I went into these meetings with not knowing exactly how they would play out. They were spontaneous. I knew these people well, but I didn't know how they would react. So I thought in advance of going in, how would I present this information? And I used what, so what, now what is a way of doing it. In the book, I use this story also to talk about how you can reframe these situations so that they are not necessarily as negative in this case as it could have been. So it was it's a story about how we can reframe emotion and help people. And in fact, while it was a miserable experience for me and certainly for the people that I had to let go, to a person that I've stayed in touch with, all of them have landed and are better off because of it. And at least one of them attributes it to the partly to the conversation that we had when I was talking about how they were retrenched. I'll let everybody know that I was so upset about this that I left the company after I let these people go. I didn't want other people letting my team go. I thought that was inappropriate, but I was so offended at how it happened. I actually left just a few weeks afterwards in protest in, in essence. So that wasn't a great time in my life. I felt really bad about how things played out, but I used that structure to help me communicate something that was very difficult to say and difficult for others to hear. Wow. I'm like a little choked up from that, but I admire that you felt so strongly and left too. Wow. Yeah, it was inappropriate and I was not pleased with how it all went. So thank you. I mean, I did what was appropriate for me. So thank you. Letting people go is an art. And if you can still 
make people feel okay about it. And like you said, reframe and care about people. Kudos to you, because I have been let go in some ways that I definitely would not want to keep in touch with the person. I hear you. I hear you. And I'm not saying I was an expert at it. I mean, there was clearly a lot of emotion, but it was very important to me to be clear in my communication, to be empathetic and to help people see the positive that was possible there, even in the worst and negative situation. And and a few people, like I said, are doing things that they are thrilled at. And one person said they would never have done it had the company not let them go at that time. And there were some resources that they were able to leverage to help them. Yeah, I loved that part of the story, too. Did you learn communication young enough where you feel like you've been able to communicate with your own parents better? So I have a very interesting family. So my mother and father, they're still alive. They are older. And my parents are very different when it comes to their communication. (laughs) I don't know how familiar you are with Star Trek, but my mother is like Dr. McCoy, the doctor who's very emotional. You know how they feel and not emotional in an overboard sense, but she's very empathetic, connecting, wants to know how you feel. My father is more like Mr. Spock, very rational, logical, very effective communicators, both of them. So growing up in an environment where I had role models doing both, I hope you can tell me and others can tell me, I tried to synthesize and take some of the best aspects of both. So I believe from a very early age, I was focused on communication. I have a very good relationship with my parents. We communicate daily. I think they know how I feel. I know how they feel. So, you know, of course, our family has its own, you know, craziness (laughs) as well. But yeah, so I think I communicate well with my parents. I think I learned much of my communication skills from my parents. And communication was always something that was important in my house. We would take the time to communicate. We would take the time to make sure we understood each other's perspective. So it was something that was very, was valued. And that was helpful to me, for sure. Wouldn't you say that it's important as a parent, as a husband, as a son? Absolutely. I mean, I think communication is the essence of relationships. You know, it is how we operationalize our relationship. And so, yes, now I have two teenage sons. Communication can be challenging in many respects, but we do work together to communicate and they do a good job. Both of my boys in very different ways are really good communicators. My older son is an amazing writer. He he is absolutely amazing. And I do not know where he gets that skill, at least from our family. And then my younger son is a good orator. He speaks very, very well. And, and some of it is, is maybe through osmosis, but I think uh, there's a lot of genetic stuff going on there too. What have you learned from them? Have you incorporated lessons that you've learned from your children into your work? Absolutely. Well, one, first and foremost, my kids humble me every day. Not that I have a big ego, I hope, but uh, you know, when it comes to technology and all these, they, I'm very humbled and, and use their resources and help all the time. Yes. So my kids have taught me how to slow down. I am somebody who moves very quickly and they have taught me to slow down, be present, really connect. My wife has helped in that regard as well. My wife certainly has helped me listen better and remind me that I need to continue to work to listen better. My kids have also told me how to bring joy and fun and reminded me that that's really important in relating and in communication. My kids can make me laugh in ways that no one else can. And and I try to remember that and, and try my best to bring humor where appropriate into my communication. So yeah, I'm somebody who learns from everybody. I have these master teachers who live under my roof and I'm trying to learn from them. Hopefully they're trying to learn from me. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but we work at it. I love that. And speaking of learning from everyone, you have a podcast as well. Can you talk about your podcast and what you've learned from doing that? 
Thank you for asking. Yes, I host a podcast for Stanford's Graduate School of Business. It's called Think Fast, Talk Smart. It's all about communication, bite-sized episodes, 20 to 30 minutes. And we help people try to hone and develop their communication. I have learned so much being a podcast host, not just on the topic area. I am a better person and communicator for that. But in terms of my own communication, I've learned how to paraphrase better. I think it's so important to synthesize what somebody says. Uh, You do a very good job of that yourself. So paraphrasing is really important. I've learned that from my guests that you really have to prepare to be spontaneous. So I think about questions in advance, but I don't say so wedded to them that we have to get through everything, but it gives me a way to start and it gives me a path to come back to if, if I feel like we're meandering. So Think Fast, Talk Smart has taught me so much about life, about communication and about myself. I would love to just dig a little bit more into what you just said as far as the preparation. Do you read books? Do you listen to podcasts that they're on? Do you actually physically write down the questions? What does your preparation look like? And it may vary per guest. Yes to all everything you said. Sometimes I'll reach out to the guest in advance and have a conversation if they're open to that. I love doing that, but not everybody is available to do that. I definitely read, listen, watch as much as I can what people have said. I think about my audience and what a value they would take from this particular guest. One of the things that I have done, and it just, you know, we're coming up on our 100th episode, the more you do, the better you get a sense of who your audience is. And so I really try to think from my audience's perspective, what would be valuable. I certainly know what I think would be valuable. So I try to channel the audience, if you will, and understand. I do draft questions, but I don't necessarily have that draft in front of me when I do the interview, but I do like to think about it. I'm a visual person, so I need to see the questions. And then typically I'll move them around because I'm always thinking about how does this tell a logical story, this conversation I'm having? It's not just random questions. To me, it develops. There's a structure, shock surprise, to the ordering of the question. So I will write them out. I'll move them around. I'll think about why certain questions go where. That's my preparation. When I first started, I would spend a lot more time than I do now. There's sort of a comfort that comes from my ability to having done it before. Just like teaching, when I first started teaching, I would prepare a ton. I still prepare, but I know I'm more efficient, both as a podcast host and as a teacher. I know what to do better than when I first started. It was like, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to do everything. What have you gotten like the biggest response from as a teacher and as a podcaster? Oh, that's a great question. I would say people have shared with me that they really appreciate the applicability of what we do. I am all about applying things. I love theory. I love learning. But if it's not applied to me, you miss something. So my whole podcast, my goal is that everybody leaves the podcast with actionable things they can do as soon as they stop listening. When I teach, I tell my students, I did not do a good job if you cannot take at least one thing from what we did in class today. And as soon as you leave this room or leave this Zoom, be able to apply it. So I think that's the biggest impact I try to have is to have people apply things. And when I hear from my students or listeners, they express gratitude that they're able to use these things right away. Yes, I do feel like there were a lot of actionable items in your book. I will say that as I was reading it, not only was I doggy earing it, but I was playing the improv games with my kids and my family and trying to do the what, so what, now what. I don't know if I was as effective. I might need some more practice with it, but it did stay with me. 
Well, thank you. And, you know, that is the highest compliment somebody can pay to me, I believe. You know, in writing the book, people will say, what's your goal? Do you want to be on the bestseller list? Do you want to sell a certain number of books? That's not my goal. I will feel successful if when I look at my book that somebody's read and it's dog-eared and underlined and dirty from hands on it, because I want it to be applied. I want this to be something people keep coming back to and using because fundamentally, I just want to help people get better at their communication. I absolutely love that. Well, your communication is a 10 and people should listen to your bite-sized bits on your podcast and buy your book. Because like I said, I will probably go back to reading your book multiple times and to the pages that I doggy-eared because there are good examples in there that I think take practice to do them right and to do them well. Just like podcasting, the more you do it, the better you become and the more concise you become. Same thing with your techniques. I think the more that you try them and the more people you try them with, the better you get at them. Absolutely. And the thing that you said there that is so important that I just want to put a highlight around is we can all get better at our communication. We just have to work at it. So many people feel like this is my life. I'm never going to be good at it. And I am absolutely here to tell you, you can get better, but it does take work. I love that. Truthfully, part of why I started a podcast is, yes, I wanted to hone my communication skills. I joined Toastmasters. And in the beginning, I felt like it was for me. And then I got some opportunities to speak. And that didn't really necessarily feel like I was able to be myself because it was so formulaic. And when you start your own show, when you start your own podcast, you get to pick the topics, you get to pick the guests, you get to pick the format. It's your creativity. And the more you do that, you really come into who you are and what your interests are. And I think that everybody should have a podcast. I agree that everybody should have a venue to find their voice and to be able to learn about themselves. And for many people, I think podcasting can help. I think journaling can help. I think writing, I think having a close friend to talk. I agree with the goal. For some people, I think being a podcast host would be intimidating. So I don't want them to say, I can't do that. That's true. There are a lot of pieces. Another thing about your book that I really loved was you said at the end of every conversation, you ask, is there something that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about and give control to the person that you're interviewing? I think that that is so smart. So I want to do that. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to leave us with? Thank you for using my technique. I think it's just respectful and I don't pretend or claim to know everything about everything. So I'd love to. The one thing we did not talk much about was listening. And listening is a critical component and part of communication. We have to listen first. We have to listen well. Many of us are listen just enough to get an idea of what the person is saying. We need to listen with intent. We need to listen not just to what people are saying, but the context in which they're saying it, how they're saying it. Listening is a critical component. And we didn't talk much about that. And I, I appreciate the opportunity just to highlight that. That is definitely something that I feel like we all need to work on. And I honestly feel like for podcasters, it's so important because we have these questions that we want to ask. And sometimes if you just ask the questions that you want to ask and leave room for magic, the conversation will be better. 120% agree. That's exactly right. Leaving the space for things to happen is really important. And you're right. Many of us in podcast, we just want to get through our questions, but sometimes being silent, letting the other person do the work or to share really enlightening. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? I would love to ask your dad in reflecting on his life and his communication, 
So I end every podcast with the same three questions. I'd like to ask him my third and final question. What are the top three ingredients that go into a successful communication recipe? Ooh, that's unique and a good one. Thank you so much. Thank you. And let's let people know how they can find all of your content. I know nofreakingspeaking.com is amazing. <laughs> and your podcast and book next. Yes, thank you. So I have two websites. Nofreakingspeaking.com is based on the first book I wrote, which was Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. So it's all about techniques to feel more confident. I have created a more generic website. MattAbrahams.com has everything, including a link to No Freaking Speaking. The book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Would love for people to who are interested in becoming more confident speaking in the moment to check that out. And then the podcast, Think fast, talk smart. And I'm a big LinkedIn user. If you're on LinkedIn, please connect with me. Would love to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much. And I want to give a final shout out to Sarab for introducing us. I am so happy that he connected us. I loved your book and I loved connecting with you. So thank you. It's an awesome person too. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. I learned a lot from you. I appreciate it. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right. So we got a little communication lesson on that one. Well, this is the art of communication. This is, again, relevant all throughout time is how do you really communicate with people? And he wants to know some of the secret sauces that I've experienced. And the number one thing is in order to get a good communication, you have to show that you're positive. You have to have a positive attitude. Okay. You have to show a sense of purpose and you have to do it where you're genuine, okay? And where you show that you are caring about whatever the subject matter or the person that you're talking to. You have to show a sense of responsibility. There's so many people that come up with excuses of why they can't do this or why they can't do that. Uh, nobody wants to hear any excuses. If you want to be able to really deliver a message, you have to show that you are direct, that you have a sense of determination and confidence that you can present yourself where people are going to be able to not only listen, but follow what you're saying. And if you don't do those things, most likely your communication is going to be a little bit out of whack. The other thing is, is that you've got to be able to, which I agree with, with Matt 100%, is that just because you think that you're getting your message across, Show the relevancy, show an example, make it where it's real and not where it's just in theory. People don't want to study theory. They want to see practicality. They want to see that it works and they want to make sure that if they try it and you're not in the room, that it also is effective and not where it's just your song and not their song. And I think that that's a large part of it. And now, of course, how do you get some of these ingredients to really be fine-tuned? Well, it takes experience. It takes brainstorming with many people so that you get a lot of diverse applications, a lot of diverse experiences help you widen your flexibility towards a, a sense of what people are really all about. And you can read it in a book, but doing it live and in person, I love this being on the stage. 
How many people go up on the stage and they can't even get a word out of their mouth? They're just choking the whole way through or they turn so red in the face that people don't even recognize who the person is. When you are a performer and you are able to sing in front of thousands of people, when you're able to give a talk in front of hundreds of people and be able to look them in the eye where they think that you're talking directly to them, that's very powerful. And I think that with all the interviewing that I've done running the Metalite Corporation, where I hired and trained hands-on a lot of people, and you want people that you can work with, not where they work for you. You want people to be part of your team. And that has to also come out in your communication, that it's got to be not all about me or you. It's got to be where there's a bigger picture to everything and where it can all be interwoven. Isn't that what we talk about legacy? Isn't that what we talk about future? All of this plays a large part in how you communicate. And as you know, I always perform better, whether it was a ball game or a chess tournament or anything, if I had people rooting for me. Sometimes when you fill up the room with people, you would think that you would do better if nobody was watching you. And yet, it's just the opposite. When you get encouragement and you have people in the stands that are rooting for you, I'm one of the people that rise to the occasion and perform better. And if that's the case with me, maybe that's the case with a lot of other people. It depends how the encouragement comes from the other people. And I was always a good team player and I like to win, but in order to win, it can't just be where it's one person hogging all the shots. You got to get everybody involved. And if you want to have a successful organization, you got to get everybody involved. And the more people you get involved with the right purpose, all of a sudden momentum starts to build and success is right around the corner. I think you said it all. Well, it's a very enjoyable to listen to people that also understand the importance of communication and keeping it positive. And that's the kind of people you want to surround yourself with. You want to surround yourself with people that also have a sense of purpose and responsibility and without excuses and that they're there for you. I like the idea about breaking the ice. You remember when I went up to Indianapolis to talk to all those inspectors with uh, the, the head of the item and their lawyers there. And I went up there without anybody. And the first thing I said when I got in the room was, you know, there's extra chairs on this side. You sure you don't want to bring in a few more people to at least uh, make the room fair? You know, it was already like five or six against one. I figured, <laughs> well, let's even the room. Maybe you need a couple more people so that uh, you guys don't feel like I'm taking advantage of you. And that right away broke the ice in the room. What that did was show that I was there to try to cooperate with them and where a lot of times there's a lot of tension before an event. That's a way to ease the tension. I like how uh, when you go to a music festival, the people are practicing a little bit beforehand. They're taking do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, where they're getting their voice prepared because when the show is on, you want to know that you've done proper exercise, flexibility before you exercise, and anything. You want to be able to perform at your best, but you've got to be relaxed and you got to be ready to go. And once you go, you, you go for the gusto and don't look back, just keep looking forward. And I see that in Matt Abrahams as well, that he's a guy that looks forward He's a guy that is trying to show structure and preparation and be able to go for the gusto. And I saw a lot of that in my own experiences as well.
Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. (laughs) I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.